This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. It's a Blood Red podcast, courtesy of the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along. A champion's performance put on for the returning crowd at Anfield. Liverpool's genie provides another magical display and the kids prepare for a midweek field trip all to come here on the Blood Red podcast as we review the win over Wolves as well as take a glance at Wednesday's Champions League action with Midland. Alongside me to talk through all of that, our Liverpool correspondent Paul Gorst, Dan Kay and Matt Addison. Hope you're all well, gentlemen. I'll come to you first off, Gorsty, and uh, inside Anfield on Sunday and had 2,000 friends with you. Well, I don't know about friends, but certainly uh, like-minded folks, shall we say. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, really good. Um, just makes so much of a difference. I mean, I, I, I'm reluctant to, to complain, um, but covering some of these games over the last few months, particularly when they haven't they haven't had much riding on them, I'm thinking of towards the back end of last season with games against Burnley and, and Aston Villa. And, and even this season, the, the, the Carabao Cup game against Arsenal was was particularly sluggish and, and the one against Mitchell and... Um, a, a lot of it just owed so much to the fact that there were no fans there and, and it was just football purely for the sake of it but this was um, as soon as uh, you never walk along came on it was um, you just got a sense that this was going to be you know something special and and even when they, when they came on to warm up actually um, first when the goalkeepers came and then when the, the, the rest of the team came the, the, the crowd really reacted to them and then I think Ian Klopp mentioned it in his post-match press conference saying kind of what that meant to the team and, and it was just a, a special moment and, and a night that uh, whoever was there won't forget in a hurry. Um, I know there was only 2,000 there look, fortunate enough to be there. Um, Sean Bradbury from from, uh, from our campus there, wasn't he? And Dan Morgan as well of, of Liverpool.com. And, uh, I haven't spoken to either of them yet, but I'd, I'd imagine that they both enjoyed their night and it was just, um, just great to have fans back and, and um, the cop were, were asking for the champions and, and the players uh, showed them you know why they are that because it was I, I just thought it kind of had a little bit of a similar feel to Leicester last season and that it was a tricky game a little bit of a worry with injuries and fatigue and um, some um, kind of trepidation in the game and Liverpool just put all that to the side and turned in one of the best performances of the season. Yeah, not the first time at Anfield this season, of course, that they've hit four or put on a brilliant display. But it seemed timely, Dan. And as Gorsty said there, of course, it was only 2,000. What did you make of it? Because I know beforehand, uh, sort of, you were caught in two minds as to what it was going to be like, only 2,000 fans at Anfield. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've had a season ticket for many years. I, I was eligible to apply uh, through the ballot for a ticket uh, for last night. <clears throat> and I didn't. Um for a number of reasons, one of them to do with the timing and being on an early shift today. Also knowing that the way it works quite fairly is if, you know, if, if you get one, you're basically out of the equation until everybody's had a go. <clears throat> but to be honest, part of it was the thought of sitting in a, a still virtually empty ground didn't, you know, on a cold Sunday night in December, didn't feel massively appealing. Obviously, I've heard from Gorsley and Doyley and, you know, all our reporters that, you know, a lot of these matches behind closed doors have been fairly dispiriting experiences but uh you know i woke up yesterday morning with a bit of a pang thinking oh the match where am i going and you know i have to be honest i found it quite emotional watching from home i don't think i'm the only person to feel that way from you having to spoke to friends and seeing stuff on social media like gorsey said even before you know once the first few pictures started dropping through of fans going through the turnstiles and singing on the cop and i thought i thought even the way they did it on the cop the way things were distanced 
it was only, what, 1,500 on, what, 15,000 on terrace. But the way everything was spaced out, if you look at a picture of the copper as a whole, it looked good. You know, it didn't look like they were all just put in one corner. They were spread out, and it gave that kind of sense of, of fans being there. And, you know, the 2,000s, you know, 500 on the main stand absolutely did themselves and everybody proud because you could hear them loud and clear, belting all kinds of songs, not just the new ones, but plenty of, plenty of ones for the old timers as well. Loud and clear, <coughs> excuse me, over the, over the TV. And Jurgen Klopp and the players were very clear afterwards, weren't they, that, you know, it made an enormous difference to them as well. You could tell they were really lifted by it, the whole experience. And that, that bore out in the performance, which, as Gorky said, was as fine a showing as I think we've seen from Liverpool this season against, you know, a, a decent team, all right, missing him and him and us up front. But like Leicester, uh, we made them look very ordinary. What do you make of it, Matt? I know you were in the, the ballot and unfortunately unsuccessful, but seeing sort of the fans return, I suppose it's sort of hoping that you can get back there yourself before too long. Yeah, exactly. That It made a huge difference, didn't it? I think we've written a story, it might have even been yours down this morning, that I think Leander Dundonka from Wolves suggested that even though there was only 2,000 within the stadium, it felt like 15,000. And mm-hmm. you can completely understand where he's coming from because, you know, as Dan says there, the, the way that they've done it on the carpet, it looked a lot more people. It certainly heard like a lot more, uh, sounded like a, a lot more people than what it was. And it was just great to, to see, obviously, Jurgen Klopp's fist pumps at the, at the end, that sort of thing. How long have we waited to see things like that? It's all of these little details that you'd almost forgotten, you know, going into the match. You were thinking, oh, it, it's great that there's fans back. But you weren't necessarily thinking, oh, it, it's great that there's fans back because we'll have this, we'll have that. And it's just all of those different little elements of that match day experience that you started to get back. And, yeah, I mean, I was watching it on Amazon Prime from my lounge and it was just, it, it just felt... Um, you know, it felt like a proper football match for the first time in, in nine months, didn't it? You didn't have the artificial crowd noise. You didn't have all that sort of nonsense of, of being empty seats and, and all of that sort of thing. Of course, there were still the vast majority of them empty. But as I say, it, it just felt a lot bigger of an occasion than, than what it might have done. And I was I was similar to Dan. I, I was dubious to, to sort of see how much of a difference it would make. But having watched Chelsea a couple of days ago and, and then obviously Liverpool now at Anfield as well, you can tell that it's just made such a, a huge difference. And I think it made a, a huge difference to the players as well. Yeah, let's get on to the performance. And before we get on to just how scintillating and brilliant it was, of course, the, you were obviously there and saw, and we're talking about the impact of the fans. It was Cueven Kelleher's Premier League debut, of course, after playing really well against Ajax in an empty stadium. But thinking specifically about the lob that Daniel Pudench tried early on in the game, that was a big save for Kelleher. And it felt, certainly first half, with the fans behind him in the cop, that it was maybe as good a game as he could have come in for his Premier League debut with the the backing of the the fans behind him. Yeah, it was pretty much a perfect night for him, wasn't it? Apart from spelling his name wrong on the back of the kit uh, in the first half. Um just once again, similar to Tuesday night, I thought he was just calm and composed, very assured, never did anything too spectacular, but didn't really need to. His kicking was good with both feet, um, made a couple of good saves, as you say, particularly the chip from Pones, um, which was quite a cheeky, clever little lob. And he was quite unlucky, really. I thought Kelleher did well to get across and claw it away. Um, just a, a really confident performance at a time when um, it was really needed because I think um, we all know Adrian isn't everyone's favourite as he when he, he comes in and, and there's a little bit of uncertainty that, that kind of sometimes spread 
most Liverpool defence if he's in goal. And the feeling might have been something similar when you've got a was he 22, 22-year-old goalkeeper coming in for his, uh, his Premier League debut and his Champions League debut on Tuesday. Um, and he just kind of dispelled them, dispelled the worries quite uh, comfortably. So, um, onwards and upwards for him. I think he'll probably play on Wednesday morning against Michelin and then he's likely to, to stay in the team for Sunday against Fulham. So, um, big couple of weeks for him and, and he so far so good. He, he's, he's done really, really well and he can be uh, very proud of, of what he's done. Yeah, and he is, as Gorsi said there, Dan, he is 22 now as well. I know goalkeepers obviously do mature a lot later than outfield players, but it does feel now that this is probably the right time for him to start trying to kick on with his senior career, whether it had been at Liverpool or elsewhere. He's sort of been on the fringes and been spoken about. You hear sort of the tales from goalkeeper training of how brilliant he is. And now we've actually, last two games, we've had a chance to actually see that with our own eyes. Absolutely. I mean, he hasn't put a foot wrong, has he, in either game? You know, as, as Gorsi said, he's been so calm and so composed in, in everything he does. And, you know, that's so important for a goalkeeper, particularly when you're playing behind, you know, a pretty much a makeshift back four, which obviously is what Liverpool's has been and will be for, you know, for the foreseeable, you know, due to the injury list that they've had. But, you know, I think he's really shown a lot of maturity. Um beyond his years, you know, that the, the, the whole point about calm to me, I don't want to get on Adrian's case because, you know, he seems like a decent lad and, and, and he helped us win the league in the Super Cup last year. But particularly with a goalkeeper, can take, you know, uncertainty and nerviness can, can become contagious. And you're looking at that, you know, the Villa game, the 7-2, there's no way Liverpool are losing that game 7-2 if, if, if Adrian doesn't make that mistake in the first couple of minutes. And, you know, the, the, you know Ajax the other night, and, and particularly probably Wolves, who you know would probably have, would have had time to prepare for the fact that Kelleher would have been in goal. May well have spoken before the game that you know they've only got a young kid in goal. Let's throw a few crosses in, see you know charge him down, see how he reacts to a bit of pressure. And he just looked absolutely nervous. Um, so he, he's deserved his opportunity. I spoke to John Aldridge just before for his for his echo column, which will be going online later this evening. And obviously he was delighted to see um, you know a, an Irishman back in England. Back in the Liverpool team, it's been a while uh, since since the, the, the likes of Robbie Keane and Steve Finnan were around, and he, he made the point that um, you know once once Allison comes back, Kevin may well have to be quite patient again because you know Allison is the best goalkeeper in the world, but there's no better place to learn your trade and you know learn your learn the ropes than under a goalkeeper like Allison, working for a manager like Jurgen Klopp, and obviously with the you know elite level. Backroom staff, backroom staff, and goalkeeping coaches he's got around him, and I, I think it's you know I think it's safe to say he is now in in 180 minutes of football really established himself as Liverpool's number two goalkeeper, and yeah, I'm delighted for that. Yeah, it certainly does seem that way. And as you say, without wanting to, to make it an Adrian bashing session, that you don't really sort of feel if Allison now he's going to miss games, if Kelleher's going to come in, there will be a lot of confidence about it. Let's talk about the performance itself then, Matt. And of course, there have been the games with Leicester City, Arsenal in the league as well, where we've waxed lyrical afterwards and said how Liverpool are the best team in the league and how brilliant they've performed. I suppose this is another one of those performances, maybe even the best of the lot so far. 
Yeah, I said last night after the game, it was very similar to the, the Leicester one last season where the pundits were kind of saying going into the match, maybe this could be the end of, of Liverpool's home unbeaten run and, and that sort of thing. And it just never looked likely to be the case. Wolves started the game quite well. I thought the first sort of 20, 25 minutes they were okay. But from that point onwards, you know, we, we used the, the word dominant on the debrief about 500 times last night. And I think that is the word that, that sums up this match. I think Liverpool controlled it. Uh, every single player were, was pretty much on their game. They, they played really well. I thought in midfield, Liverpool dominated. Genie Wijnaldum, absolutely superb again. Curtis Jones quietly just doing that defensive diligence that he's been able to, to bring to his game so far this season. You look at the fullbacks, I thought it was obviously a huge boost to have Trent Alexander-Arnold back. But even before that, Nico Williams had done well. Andy Robertson again putting in another shift. He just doesn't seem to, to ever get tired, does he, of doing that on that left-hand side. And yeah, there, there were so many positives for Liverpool. It, it was a performance I, I really thought that put down a marker. And I know we're going to come on to some of the other title contenders uh, you know, later in the podcast. But for me, that was a performance against a really, really good Wolves team with some really, really good players that just, for me, underlined the reason that Liverpool should be Premier League title favourites this season. And I do think they will go on and win it because to perform as well as that with as many injuries as what they've got, it just underlines the, the strength and, and the quality that Jurgen Klopp has got to work with. And just how sharp Paul was, Mohamed Salah. We've spent weeks and weeks talking about the form of Roberto Firmino, how brilliant Diogo Jota is, and yet Salah still is the man to find the back of the net for the Reds. Yeah, it wasn't even a, a, a massive mistake from Conor Cody, was it? It's just a, a slight miscontrol, and, and before you know it, Salah's in, and, and he scored his 11th goal of the season. Um, just a just a, a, a top striker, isn't he? A top forward. Um, I thought... I mean, everywhere you, everywhere you look across that Liverpool team last night, you can find someone who, who was excellent. And uh, you can't really single out anyone because of, of how good you were as a team. But uh, Salah and Mane um, look particularly sharp. And, and that is um, that is important for Liverpool because, you know, they need those two don't be at the very best. And Mane was unfortunate not to get his, his goal. Um, Nelson Tomato taking that off his toe and claiming that as an own goal. But um, I thought both of those two were excellent. And if... Um, if one doesn't get you, the other will. And, and I thought uh, both, both of them were, were superb, along, along with everyone else. I thought Wijnaldum was excellent. Robertson, again, um, you know, both of those two played so much football but didn't let it show last night. Great to see Alexander-Arnold back in the team, popping up with, a, with an assist, pretty much, if he doesn't get it given to him. Um, just uh, just an all-round perfect night. As Klopp said, he said, if no one's injured, then this is a perfect night. And, um, you know, it looks as though that is the case. So, uh, superb night and it just kind of keeps them uh, on the toes of Saturn, doesn't it, with that big game coming up? Um, what is it, in next week, is it? Yeah, yeah. Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, very, very soon indeed. Uh, Dan, we best talk about Connor Cody returning to Anfield. The the lad from St. Helens, unfortunately, we've not got Ian Doyle with us to uh, back up his, his, his local man. But um, in terms of Connor Cody, night to forget for him, that error for the first goal and then... Well, the dive. Less said about that, probably the better. Yeah, it's not a it's not a night that uh, young Connor will look back with any particular degree of fondness. I don't think. I mean, he, he, he's a good, he's a good player and a decent lad. And uh, yeah, there has been a little bit of talk that you know, particularly obviously with Liverpool's defensive crisis, that maybe Liverpool might look to um, to make a move and, and bring him out, bring him back to Anfield. I think possibly what happened last night possibly kills. Stone dead any any chance of that happening? 
it was a bit of an embarrassing moment for him, wasn't it? I mean, it you know, and and for once, VAR actually did its job and didn't stitch Liverpool up, which seems like it's been doing on a weekly basis um, recently. Um, it was one of those incidents, was it, where, I mean, I guess it it, it was a dive. Um, he, he, he has gone to ground easily, but I'm all, you know, I've, I've always kind of had this <laughs> this thing that it, it can't always be a penalty or a dive. Sometimes it's something in the middle, you know, and, and whether his momentum took him down or whatever, I've got to be honest, when I first saw it, even on the first replay, I thought that's a pen. And it was only when he looked a bit closer, you realised that Mane had actually kind of brought his, his his foot back a little bit. And it may well be that, that Cody had already kind of seen the foot coming out and was prepared to go over it. Listen, it's what footballers do. Liverpool footballers do it. All footballers do it. It's part of the game. Whether we like it or not, VAR is there to kind of, kind of clamp down on it. <clears throat> and hopefully maybe last night was uh, the first step in VAR, getting its act together because you know it's, it's thankfully we're what twenty odd minutes since the sixteen twenty minutes since this podcast, and it's the first time we've mentioned VAR, and that feels like an improvement going on recent weeks. It's nice to be talking about football again. Yeah, Gorsley, did you nearly fall off your chair at Anfield? I know you and VAR have a a very spiky relationship. To be honest, from where I was sitting when when it got given, I could kind of see yeah that that could be viewed as a high foot. But then, as soon as you see the replay, I, I actually wasn't wasn't too worried because it, it was just so blatantly not. Mane kind of knows it's going to happen and, and just checks his foot, doesn't he? And then Cody goes over. So uh, I did put me trust in, in VAR for that one. All the the people implementing VAR, shall we say, which is uh, it's just the, the the greater of the two evils. Yeah, man, who's always got his trust in VAR is Matt Addison. There, Matt just sort of. In terms of the incident, I think Dan's probably right there. It, it, was it a dive or was it he was sort of anticipating the contact, which, of course, never came? Yeah, yeah. I think you've thrown me under the bus with that VAR introduction there with the comments section, but uh, <laughs> we'll brush over that. Um, no, I, I, I do think it was a dive. I think it, I think there's a fine line, isn't there, between is he anticipating contact and is he throwing himself to the ground? I think he was trying to, to deceive the referee. I, I really do, I think. You know, obviously, seeing that, that Mane is, has put his boot up there, it, it was a little bit of a risk from Mane. But then, you know, the, the fact that he sort of throws himself forward, throws himself to his knees without any contact, it, it doesn't look too good. It, I was the, the same as Dan and, and, and Gorsty. You know, it, in real time, you thought, oh, as Mane made a little bit of an error there, has it been a penalty? But then, you know, you, you watch it back and it, it's pretty obvious that there's no contact there and, and there's no reason for Cody to go down. And yeah, I have very much been on the side of VAR being generally a good thing. Not everyone they get right, but certainly that one last night was was absolutely spot on. Just, just, just to interject, when I was watching match of the day last night when I got back home, they show the incident and then Henderson kind of shouts to Cody, Connor, Connor, and then he, he, he fused on him, but Cody's kind of walking away and said, say, oh, just leave me alone, as, as though we knew. He did give a sly little low five, I think it was, to Dendonka, sort of thinking we might have got one here, but I think he knew yeah. in the back of his mind that... I think he kind of knew, oh, what have yeah. I done here? I've put myself to the floor in front of the cop and I've got a dodgy penalty and he just looked like he wanted the ground to swallow him up. And yeah. uh, That's probably how he was feeling when it got taken off him and it was just a, a night to forget, wasn't it, for uh, for someone who... So many people speak really positively about him, so I don't want to uh, let that stay in his character too much. It's just a... A bad night to the office for Connor Cody. 
Yeah, I'm sure it will get wiped away from the memory quite clearly and quite quickly after the result the Reds did have. But Gorsi, I do want to ask you about Jeannie Vinaldum. He put in an absolutely masterful display and, of course, got that second goal. Leaves us all questioning once again what's going on with the contract. Well, he can speak to clubs, can't he, in, in just over three weeks. So um, I think you, you have to resign yourself to the fact that he's going to be on his way next next season and it's just going to be an absolutely crying shame because he's played pretty much... Uh, the only game he's missed was Lincoln in, in the League Cup in September. And so at a time when everyone's injured and fatigue and, uh, and there's so much talk around all that, he's just carried on no problem. And it's a strange one with Wijnaldum because I actually asked Klopp on Friday at his press conference... Given the amount that he's played, and you speak about the red zone, which is anyone who's unsure of it, it's kind of like the theoretical point that um, makes the coaches think players are close to an injury, so they might need the rest. So given he, he's played so much and he's probably in the red zone, where and when are you planning to, to give him a rest? And Clock kind of dismissed it and just said, I don't want to talk about that now. And, you know, Genie's playing fine and he's in the red zone, but so is everyone else. And then strangely, he kind of just said, it's nothing to do with this contract situation, which I, I, I wasn't really sure what he meant by that, if, if I'm entirely honest. Um, and I just think if it's anything to do with Liverpool, if, if they get a, if it's in their courts and they've absolutely got to get him tied down for, for the next few years. And he's 30 now, so this is probably going to be his, his big, big last contract, isn't it, wherever he goes or whether he signs a new one in Anfield. And he might be looking at it thinking, He's one of the, the leaders in the squad, isn't he? There's a four-man leadership group within the squad, which is Henderson, Milner, Van Dijk and Wijnaldum. And he might be thinking, he's still on the same contract he signed in 2016, so he might be thinking, you know, might my, my pay backup reflect me, my seniority in the squad at a time when he's come in? Since he's come in, pretty much everyone else has been signed and they're probably going to be on huge money, aren't they? So maybe that's part of the thinking, I'm not too sure. But I know he's been asked a couple of times about it and he's kind of, suggested or hinted that it's uh, it's in Liverpool's cause. And if that is the case, then uh, Liverpool, it's a no-brainer. They've, they've got to get them tied down for another two or three years. Yeah, it is remarkable when you think about sort of the contract situation, Dan, that he hasn't sort of, through any time, signed a renewed contract. Because I think yesterday he showed that quality as well as that sort of dedication and commitment and consistency that he has. You, you sort of... I think forget maybe that he was on the, the Ballon d'Or shortlist, the 30-man long list last season. And that due to the quality that he's got, he's got not just because he's there every week. I think he's a phenomenal footballer. I think he's one of the absolute cornerstones of this Liverpool era of success. <clears throat> I think he's one of the most underrated players we've had in a long time. I've heard people compare him to Ronnie Whelan, which I think is a fair comparison. Um, another, another midfielder that pops up with vital goals but also had this tremendous ability and versatility to be able to play in a number of roles across midfield, which is a manager's dream, isn't it? Particularly when you're going through a season like Liverpool, have we constantly trying to put square pegs in round holes. Um, chatting with some of my mates in a WhatsApp group last night, and they were talking about, you know, Wijnaldum, and surely he's got to sign him up, and as Michael Edwards got a little bit of magic up his sleeve and everything. And I, I kind of expressed the opinion, not that I've got anything really to back it up on. I just get the impression that maybe... Obviously, there was a lot of talk in the summer, wasn't there? And there was this, this kind of this feeling for a long time that we were only going to get Thiago if Wijnaldum left. And obviously, Thiago came and Wijnaldum stayed. <clears throat> obviously, at that time as well, Ronald Koeman had just arrived at Barcelona. So that obviously ramped up 
the, the, the obvious link between Coombe and Sarnia's compatriot. Now, I think I'm right in saying they got, they got beat again at Cadiz at the weekend, and they're having a really woeful season. And, you know, it, it, doesn't, it's not, it doesn't take the biggest leap of imagination to imagine that Coombe won't be there in the summer. But my point is, I, I have the impression that basically once we got to the end of the window in, in was it September? It was September, was it? Because it was <clears throat> pushed back a bit. I got the impression that both parties were happy to, to say, let's just leave it till the summer and see how we're looking then. Because <clears throat> obviously a season in the year of such, such uncertainty <clears throat> where no one really knew what was going to happen next. I, it's, it's something I asked Aldo about as well, you know, when we were chatting before for his column. And he made the point that, Really, Ginny holds all the cards now. His form and his consistency have kind of pushed Liverpool into a bit of a corner here. As Gorsi says, I think most fans, even the ones who were saying during the summer, sell him so we can get Thiago, <clears throat> maybe they didn't fully appreciate what Ginny gives to the team, but I think his outstanding showings in the start of this season must have done by now. And I'd be very surprised if, if there were many or any Liverpool supporters that would not be quite keen and would be really pleased if all of a sudden we heard whether between now and January or in January or any points before the summer that he signed a new that he signed a new deal. But it wouldn't surprise me if it drags on until the summer. But if it does, I don't think that definitely necessarily means he's going. I think it might just mean that both sides are keeping their options open. I suppose that is the key thing, isn't it, Matt, that in January he can he can start talking to other clubs. Doesn't necessarily mean that he will immediately have something on the table that he signs and Klopp has sort of underlined a number of times that regardless what happens, you you'd expect Genie Vinaldum to keep putting in the kind of performances he has done already this season through to the uh, end of his Liverpool career, whenever that may be. Yeah, he's been obviously absolutely superb. We obviously know of the interest of Barcelona. I think I was reading something the other day that Barcelona are struggling so much financially, they might have to delay payments on wages and stuff like that from January because they just can't afford to, to pay their top stars all this money. So you wonder whether even from a financial perspective that would have been a good idea or, or would be a good idea. Certainly you would think that can't be an option for them to be looking at him in terms of a, a pre-contract agreement if there is so much uncertainty on that. And not obviously an expert on on Barcelona or, or anything like that but it doesn't sound like they're in the best situation economically from what has happened this year so it'll be interesting to, to see what options there are there uh, I've written a piece which I think is going out overnight which essentially says that you know if Liverpool do lose him there will be a plan behind that I think obviously they obviously look at, at long-term strategies and in terms of you know, who is going to replace all of these players long term. I think there's 10 or certainly nine players who come next summer will have two years left on their contracts. Liverpool have then got to have a sort of real hard think about which ones of those do you extend the deals. I think Jordan Henderson, Fabinho, Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane. There's a group of players who are, are at a similar age and I suppose what Liverpool will be thinking is that they don't want to have a squad where they give all of those players new contracts, they age together, you get sort of an older squad, early 30s and, and younger players coming through and, and nothing much in the middle. So I think if Genie Wijnaldum does leave, there will be method behind that. I do think Michael Edwards, you know, you, you've got to trust what he has done over the last few years. They will be aware of how good Wijnaldum is. It's obvious to all of us how good he is and how important he is, not just from, as you say, the, the number of minutes he's played, but the quality that he has. But if Wijnaldum is to leave, I think that will just really be a part of a, a longer term strategy rather than you know, it being a, 
a real colossal miss. I think it'll just be the next step forward in, in terms of refreshing that squad. So, yeah, if it was up to me, obviously you, you give them a new deal. You give all of these players a new deal. But at some point, Liverpool will have to start to, to freshen things up. And I'm not saying necessarily. I think that it's the right time to be thinking about doing that right now. I think you could leave it another couple of years. But Liverpool know far better than I do what they've got coming up. All the terms, all the deals and, and what financially it would cost to tie Genie one album down. You'd have to imagine he'd be looking at at least a, a three-year contract. Do you give him you know, a huge increase in wages to take him up to the age of 33? I'm not too sure, given the fact that you've got Henderson, Thiago, Milner, who are all in that same age bracket. So I don't think it's as straightforward a decision as it looks, even though he's obviously hugely important. And if it was up to me, just from an emotional point of view, you would love to see him stay. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. On that evolution point then, there goes, it's an interesting one, but are we seeing sort of the completion and roundness of a midfield player in Curtis Jones that maybe he's coming a bit earlier than we thought? Last couple of performances in particular, of course, he's got a goal, but on Sunday, defensively as well and positionally in that midfield, he was really disciplined in the role he was asked to do. Yeah, it's just one of the quiet success stories of the season, is it? Just kind of trundling on without too much... Um, attention, but to the point where um, when he's in the team now, you don't really think twice about it and think, oh, that, that's a bit of a risk putting Jones in. Um, he's just kind of slowly or quickly rather becoming one of the um, one of the, the established members of the squad. And, and it's great to see. I mean, we've we seen him last season with flashes of, of brilliance and flashes of kind of stuff that, that made his name in the youth ranks, um, thinking of the goal against Everton in particular. and the goals against Shrewsbury, he's obviously captain in the return leg, um, the youngest Liverpool captain ever, I think. And uh, he scored against Aston Villa a little bit later on after the restart, didn't he? And um, just everything he did, you, you could see why there'd been like a, a, a role earmarked for him post Adam Lallana. But he's just come in and instead of just maybe turning 15, 20 minute cameos into um, half an hour cameos or the on start, he's just become a a bit, a bit of a first, you know, a, a name on on the team sheet from the off, and, and I, I think a lot of that is down to the amount of injuries that Liverpool have had in midfield. I think if the likes of Cater and Thiago and Milner and, and Oxley Chamberlain hadn't been out as much as they have been, then Jones wouldn't have featured as much as he has. But um, I think that's been a little bit of a happy accident, and he certainly made the most of of the opportunities that, that have come from that. So they played to him. Um, he, he's having a really solid um, season and. In a way, it will be more impressive than, than the kind of breakout season of last time when, when he faced onto the scene with obviously the goal against Everton. Is this unfair, Dan, to say that maybe Curtis Jones is becoming an, and doing the role of the midfield that Liverpool fans and even maybe Jurgen Klopp hoped Naby Keita would have done when, when he arrived? Obviously, he struggled with injury himself, but Jones has been, whether it be in, a, in an attacking role, in sort of one of those three more functional roles or even as I say defensively he's, he's done absolutely everything in that midfield <clears throat> I don't think it's entirely unfair guy um, because you know we, I remember we said at the start of this season when you know Naby had you know, quite a decent end to last season and a decent start to this season and I remember commenting on the fact that you know it wasn't just all about flashy touches and shots on the edge of the box he was doing some of the you know for want of a better expression the midfield dog's body work you know the the, the unflashy unseen water carrying that you know, that every midfield needs. <clears throat> and 
what's impressive about it, obviously, I would imagine Kate is what, four or five years older than Jones, at least. Um, you know, and they've got you know, a fair degree more experience, certainly. Curtis seems to have kind of picked up the mantle from Kato in that regard. And the big advantage he's got going for him is that he's able to stay fit. You know, you can have all the ability in the world, but if you're not able to get on the pitch often enough, particularly in a competitive squad, and particularly when obviously having had the kind of injury problems that Liverpool have had this season, then you're not putting yourself in the best position for your manager to be able to give your best to the team now. It's, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's nobody more disappointed at that situation than Naby Keita himself. And I certainly haven't given up hope on him as a Liverpool player. But I think it's fair to say Curtis, because of his because <clears throat> of his consistency and his reliability in, in being able to get on the training pitch and be available for squads week after week, <clears throat> has probably risen above Keita in the pecking order now because the manager knows he can rely on him. And until Naby can get fit and stay fit, it just feels like it's always going to be a bit stop-start with him. But you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe this spell will be the one where Naby does stay fit, gets a couple of goals and and good appearances under his belt, and kicks on into the new year. We really hope so because there's definitely a player there. I think anyone that's seen him in action for Liverpool can see that very clearly. But he's got to be available more often. It, it's as simple as that. Yeah, we might have a bit of a, a chat about him or it might be a chance for him against Midland in midweek. Before we get to talking about that, though, let's talk about the sort of lay of the land in the Premier League. All teams have now played at least 10 games. Of course, there were those involved in the latter stages of European competition last season, primarily Manchester United and Man City, who have now both played 10 games. But Matt, Liverpool sitting joint top of the Premier League table with Tottenham Hotspur, a side who put in a controlled performance themselves in the North London derby on Sunday. And they, along with Chelsea, who saw off Leeds, are looking like the uh, the two contenders to Liverpool's crown. They are. They are at this moment in time. I was very impressed with Chelsea against Leeds. And you've got to say that the, the Tottenham performance against Arsenal was pretty much... You know, if you hadn't watched the game and, and you tried to describe it without watching it, that's pretty much what it would be, isn't it? Very much sit in, defend, do the typical Jose Mourinho things and rely on Harry Kane and, and Hyungman Son to essentially win you the game with the, the counter-attacks and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, two very impressive sides. I do think Liverpool are a step ahead in the fact that Liverpool have already suffered greatly with injuries. You would imagine that someone like Tottenham, if they were to lose one of Son or Kane or potentially both of them at some point, you wonder whether they would be able to continue performing at the same level. Chelsea, it's slightly different. Obviously, they've got so many attacking options. You wonder what would happen if they lost the goalkeeper or one of the, the better centre-backs or Ben Chilwell, for example, for a sustained period of time. You wonder whether that would affect them, but certainly in an offensive sense, they're, they're doing okay. So, yeah, it, I think they are the two teams to watch. I think Manchester City will be there or thereabouts as well. So, there are still a couple of teams to, to sort of bring into that equation. But I think, you know, over the next few games, certainly with Tottenham, I think they play Crystal Palace at the weekend. They've then got Liverpool, one or two more tricky fixtures before Christmas as well. I think certainly by the middle of January latest, probably even earlier than that, to be honest, just looking at, at their fixture list and the number of matches, the injuries that they're likely to pick up. I think we will know for certain whether or not Tottenham are genuine contenders. But I do think Chelsea just because of, of the attack and, and the depth that they have, the goals that they score, I think they'll certainly be closer to Liverpool than, than what they were last year. And, and you wouldn't be surprised if they were probably, for me, just ahead of Tottenham come the end of the season. But yeah, as I say, I think that the next few weeks will be crucial. 
Yes, yeah, Spurs, Liverpool and Chelsea as well. Gorse, the only three sides in the Premier League who have each only lost one game so far this season. 11 games in, though. Is this too early for us to be talking about who's got what games and whose runs are tougher? Or is it all part and parcel of a title race? Yeah, I, I think now is a, is a decent time to be kind of weighing it up. Um, and, and I agree. I think Spurs are definitely... Contenders, they've got a manager who's been there and done it before. I think was Jose Mourinho won three Premier Leagues with, with Chelsea that he never kind of tires of, of reminding people. And what I've seen with Tottenham this season, um, they look very good on the counter attack. Um, Kane and Son are just a, an unbelievable pair at the moment, aren't they? And you know, Son is just, just brilliant, isn't he? I mean, I was, I was watching the North London derby, well, the first half yesterday, before I ventured up to Anfield and He's just a Liverpool player, isn't he? In a Tottenham shirt, he works so hard. Play anywhere across that front three. He's, he's very quick, two great feet, superb finisher. Um, I think he'd be an absolute superstar in this Liverpool squad. Harry Kane, we all know about him. Um, scored again yesterday. The, the only thing for for Tottenham is, did he have that strength and depth? As Matt says, if they were to get something of, of an injury crisis anywhere near the one that Liverpool have had to kind of navigate through, then that, you would think, would scupper them hugely. But um, Mourinho set them up defensively. I think they've got the best defence in the Premier League now and, and they look so threatening on, on the counter-attack. So um, they're, de- they're definitely challengers. And um, Chelsea, in a completely different way, are, are challengers as well. I mean, we've spoken there about how Mourinho can kind of organise a team and, and get them well drilled. I think Frank, Frank Lampard has just subscribed to a bit of a theory of um, buying good players and sticking them in the team and seeing how they end up getting on because that seems to be the way they're playing at the moment, but um, all, all three teams look like they're going to be really pushing for, for this title. And of course, you can't rule Manchester City out either. So um, it's going to be an interesting one over the next few weeks. And then um, post Christmas, we'll see what kind of shape everyone's in. And, and we might have a little bit of a better understanding. But I still think Liverpool are the team to beat, especially when they're putting in the kinds of performances that, that they did last night. Yeah, somehow the, the crisis club of the Premier League, Manchester United, are a point ahead of Manchester City at the moment. Of course, those two do meet in a Manchester derby at the weekend. But point on Chelsea, Dan, and I saw you nodding your head along with what the guys were saying on Tottenham. But on Chelsea, did Liverpool play them at the right time? They're the only team to have beaten Chelsea. And it does feel now as though all those stars that they did bring in are now beginning to, to gel together. Yeah, it was what it was the second weekend of the season, third weekend. It, it, it was, yeah. Thiago signed, didn't he? Um, Thiago and Jasper just signed, and they went straight. Well, Thiago went straight into the squad on the Sunday, so I think it was the twentieth September. Yeah, because because Thiago came off the bench, didn't he? At half time. Um, yeah, Chelsea are in are in better shape now than they were then. But um, yeah, you know, I've, I've, if if Liverpool were to play them tomorrow, I'd still fancy us to win. I think we're a better team than them. But, but yeah, you you can't take Chelsea for granted. This is one of the things I always say about Mourinho. <clears throat> Even if, you know, you could, well, we'll see this season, but, you know, he seems like he's starting to rebuild his reputation a little bit with Tottenham. But his previous two, sort of certainly, you know, obviously didn't particularly work out for him at Manchester United. And things ended particularly sour for him, sourly for him the second time at Chelsea. But what he instilled when he first went into Chelsea in 2004 was this culture of, this winning culture, this winning mentality <clears throat> that has sustained long after his first exit there in, what, 2007. The fact that they've been able to bring managers in like Angelotti, like Conte, and just win a league within a year or two, even if that manager then goes within a year or two. I put a lot of that down to 
what Mourinho forged into that club during that first spell between what 2004 2007. <clears throat> now, even if you know, probably, there probably isn't a single player left from that era now. Obviously, Frank Lampard was there as a player himself, and even though he's early on in, in, in his man in his managerial career. <clears throat> I, th- I think he's going to go on to, to become a decent manager. He's already put some decent players together. Probably got a little bit of a free pass last year, didn't he, really? Because it was his first season. They had the transfer ban. You know, <clears throat> there wasn't too much pressure on him. That being said, once they got once a club like Chelsea gets to a cup final, an FA Cup final against Arsenal, I think they would expect to win. No offence, Guy. And the, and, and the fact that, that, Chelsea, that Chelsea did turn them over, sorry, that Chelsea did get turned over by Arsenal, <clears throat> means that maybe things were things were just pinpointed a little bit more on Lampard this season. So they've started well, but you do get the feeling that there'll be plenty of entertaining games surrounding Chelsea this year, and they've got some really exciting attacking players. Obviously, the the, the German the lads they brought from Germany, Werner and Hayek, but Pulisic, you know, the man who of course helped helped win the league for Liverpool back in June. Um, he 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 was back from injury and scored scored at the weekend, didn't he? And they've got some really, really good players. The, the 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 French goalkeeper they brought in looks, you know, a significant improvement on Kepa. Um, but you, Thiago Silva is an excellent player, but he's knocking on a little bit now. And you kind of think, when push comes to shove, Liverpool will get chances against the likes of him. But for me, Chelsea and Tottenham are the main two contenders. Um, you can't rule City out, and I'm sure they will go on a run. But um, yeah. Chelsea will be in the mix, but as Gorsley said, and Matt, and you know, I would only add my voice to that, Liverpool are the team to beat. They proved it last season, they proved it again this season. A few, Quite a few people have said, and I agree entirely, if if it wasn't for the injury crisis, we'd be walking this league right now. The fact that we are a joint top, you know, joint second on goal difference, having had <clears throat> arguably the worst injury crisis since the days of Graham Souness and Phil Bosmer. I think says a lot about the, the, the mentality and the ability of this squad. <clears throat> and if they can get more players back in the new year, <clears throat> I don't think we'll win it by, by 18 points like we did last year. But I have no reason what to assume that <clears throat> having been deprived of the chance to celebrate a Premier League title this year, hopefully we will get the chance to do so genuinely in 2021. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Let's have a quick chat then about Midland before we go and do our team selector. Matt, this is going to be a chance for a number of the, the players on the fringes maybe to get a chance to shine and those key players for a chance to actually get some rest for once. Yeah, exactly that. That's uh, the way that you've got to look at it. You've got to think that one or two key players will be afforded a rest. We've spoken about Genie Wijnaldum and Andy Robertson. I think those two are the, the two in particular that you would look to give the complete week off. I think they're the, the top two in terms of minutes played for Liverpool this season. They just basically never miss a game, do they? So you'd imagine, given this is uh, an opportunity for, for that to happen, you've got to assume that, that that will happen. One or two other players, I think, you know, could could still be there. The fact that Diogo Jota didn't start on Sunday might suggest to me that he will play midweek. Um, there will be one or two bigger players there than than po- probably is necessary, given that there's literally nothing riding on this game. But yeah, it's a, it's an opportunity to to rotate and it's an opportunity to give minutes to a couple of youngsters as well. I know we're, we're going to come on to our teams. I think someone like a Jake Kane or a Leighton Clarkson, maybe in there with some other experienced players, couldn't you know couldn't be a, a bad option to, to go down. They've been on the bench a couple of times for, for the Champions League so far this season. It would be a, a nice reward, I think, for, for one or two of the, the young players to get a chance. So 
yeah, there'll there'll be plenty of changes, but it'll probably be a, a slightly stronger Liverpool team than I've seen one or two fans speculate. Jurgen Klopp said it, didn't he, Gorsty, when the, the Premier League title was won, that he didn't need to learn anything about players. He wouldn't be sort of throwing players in for chances to impress because he knows what they can do. Just wondered how much of that was sort of for the sound bites and how much he, he can actually learn in a, in a game like this, maybe from a couple of those youngsters he might give a chance to. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you think... Ideally, you'd, you'd look to rest and rotate as many as you could, but Liverpool aren't really in a position to be able to do that without massively weakening the, the overall quality of the team. It's not like they can put out a, a Carabao Cup team, say. Uh, it's it's more of a case of either the, the big guns are going to play or you're going to end up with a, the team that could turn out okay on a Saturday morning for an under-23 game or an under-18 game. So, not too sure how he juggles it. Um, I, I think I think I agree with Matt in saying that um, it's not going to be as um, strange a, a team as, as some might think. So I think, you know, we've seen loads of jokes, haven't we, about bring your boots and, you know, the under-12 is going to be getting the game. But I think, I don't think there were too many who will be coming in for, for the debut. I think, I think Reese Williams is, is, is going to be playing. Nico Williams will keep his place. Costa Shimakas. And then, I um, um, who else? Kelleher. I think he'll probably stay in the team. Then I think generally, other than those, it's going to be something resembling a bit of a first team um, 11. Yeah, let's get to our team then. Dan, I'll, I'll let you pick the goalkeeper and back four. And then if we want to pick it apart, we will. Otherwise, we'll move on. Who do you think is going to be between the sticks and the back four? I'd be almost tempted to give Adrian a game just so his nose isn't completely put out of joint. But bearing in mind that it looks like Adrian, sorry, Alisson is still going to be missing for maybe another week or so. And Kelleher may need to play at Craven Cottage and possibly even against Tottenham a week on Wednesday. I think maybe for rhythm and consistency, maybe maybe you have to keep Kelleher in and goal. Um, I'd agree by and large what the lads said. Nico Williams and Simakas at fullback. Reese Williams nailed on. He's played virtually every Champions League game so far, hasn't he? In this group stages, and I know I was half the you know, until I heard what the lads said, who to be fair are probably both better informed than I and what Jurgen Klopp's likely to do. I was almost tempted to think, do you throw Seth Vandenberg in? Because obviously, Liverpool, you know, the only other option would be Fabinho or Matip, and both of those have injury problems. And if either of the one of those was to pick up a knock, then that would be really rather distressing. Um, I would, but I can see where the lads are coming from. I can't see him putting out a complete set of kids. So maybe it's a case of Reese Williams plays the 90 and Massip and Fabinho have a half each. Yeah, of course, he does have five substitutes in this game mm-hmm. that he can use Jurgen Klopp. Matt, unless you want to pick the, the back four apart, what are you saying about the midfield? Yeah, I mean, just on the, the back four, I, I definitely have Fabinho in there. I don't think Seth Vandenberg is is anywhere near ready at this moment in time. I think he will be a very good footballer, but I don't think he's he's quite ready. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be looking at uh, certainly Fabinho at, at, at centre-back. Possibly you could do half and half with, with Matip, but I think there's probably enough time to the weekend. And, you know, it's Fulham, obviously, Liverpool have got to turn up and, and treat it, you know, as a, a big game. But I think Fabinho certainly can, can play in, in both of those. In midfield, uh, I think Naby Keita has to play. Um, he's obviously back fit now. It's an opportunity for him. 
I would be looking to, to give Jake Kane an opportunity in midfield. I'm not 100% sure whether Jurgen Klopp will will go down that route, but I think if you put him in there, that's a, a reward for his progress. He's been training with the, the first team. He's been impressing whenever he's played for the under-23s. As I said before, he's, he's played or certainly travelled and, and trained with Liverpool for these Champions League nights. So um, it would be a toss-up between him and, and, and Leighton Clarkson. I'd just go with him just on the, the form of this season. And put him in there, as I say, with with Cater on one side and, and Jordan Henderson on the other, just to offer a little bit of experience. But again, give Gino and Alden a rest and, and offer some youth players a, a little bit of a chance as well. Yeah, we heard the impact that Henderson had away at Atalanta and that he has done throughout, certainly with the youngsters. So if Jake Kane were to play, that would sort of seem to make sense. Gorsty then, unless again you want to pull that midfield apart, I'll come to you for the, the, the forward line. No, I don't think I'd, I'd say he's kind of just playing devil's advocate to Matt. And if he's going with Jay Kane, then I'll go with Leighton Clarkson. And I think Kater is a shoe in, isn't he? And uh, Henderson, um, for that reason, you say, guy, in terms of um, is, uh, he's very vocal and, and kind of coaching players through. So that'll be invaluable if someone like Kane or Clarkson plays. Um, and then up front, um, Divock Origi, Takuni Minamino, and Jota, maybe. Um, trying to think if, if there's anyone in the academy ranks who, who could step up and, and give them a go, but I don't think there is in, in those those kind of areas. So that would be my front three for, for uh, Wednesday night. Dan, do you concur or are you going to change the, change the forward line? No, I, I certainly agree. That that was the three. I, I did jot, jot, jot a little team down here well, um, just before. That's the three I had up front. I was possibly thinking, um, ordinarily, you'd, you'd, Curtis Jones would be one of the first names you'd be thinking of throwing into a game like this, but... He's played an awful lot of football recently. <clears throat> and the two lads there made a fairly persuasive argument, the fact that <clears throat> the worth of having Henderson on the pitch. And, of course, he is only just coming back from injury, isn't he? He only returned, what, a week or two ago? So, he, you know, getting another 55, 60 minutes under his belt probably wouldn't do him any harm. And, obviously, he can be the manager's voice on the pitch just to shepherd some of these young lads through before hopefully getting to put his feet up for the last half hour with Liverpool having a nice lead in the bag, we would like to think. What's the score going to be then, Matt? Uh, well, it completely depends on, on what team Liverpool put out, doesn't it? Um, I oh, Let's be positive. Let's go for Diogo Jota to fire Liverpool to a 2-1 win. Gorsty? Yeah, it's difficult without knowing how strong they're going to go for this one. So um, I might sit on the fence and say a one-all draw. And Dan? 4-2 Liverpool. I was going to say 3-0 myself. Yeah, I think they'll, they'll get the job done. Even with that team we've selected, Diogo yeah. Jota, we've we've seen what he can do in Europe. Well, that's it from us here on the Blood Red podcast. Thanks for joining us. Of course, you can keep across Wednesday night's game, across the Echo, the live match blog, and plenty of post-match reaction. We'll be back with the debrief here on the Blood Red channel, as well as Jurgen Klopp's post-match press conference. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.